So at 11.59 p.m. on New Year's Eve 1992, I was standing in the middle of the streets of Lang Kwai Fung. I was 17 years old. I'd been out for dinner with my mates, and we'd had a few drinks, and here we were right in the heart of Lang Kwai Fung, just as they were counting down to midnight, and I've just realized my mum is watching online. Hi, mum. <laughs> yes, this is a story about me being in Lang Kwai Fung. Stay with me. <laughs> 11.59, and we're so excited. And the place was absolutely packed. I mean, we were shoulder to shoulder with the people around us, and everybody was so excited to welcome in 1993. Anyone remember 1993? Yeah, this is a young-aged church. So, and they count down to midnight, and at the shout of midnight, something terrible happened. There were thousands of people on the short, narrow streets of Lang Kwai Fung, but there were also thousands of people in the bars in that moment. And just as midnight came, the people in the bars randomly decided to rush out onto the streets. But there was already so many people on the streets that it was difficult, and when we had this wave of people, thousands of people rushing out onto the streets that already had thousands of people on it, and if you've ever been to Lang Kwai Fung, maybe you've been there once or twice, if you've ever been there, you'll know that there's those narrow streets there, and the crush that was created was unlike anything I have ever experienced. In fact, it was so many people and so much pressure that the crushing became overwhelming. I literally had many times over about 15 minutes, the crushing was so tight that you were literally lifted up off of the ground and your feet did not touch the ground for about one minute. You were moved around so much by the crowd. We realized that as we were moving around, that if you fell down onto the ground, there'd be no way that you would be able to get back up. And as we were literally being shifted around, floating off of the ground, my friend Matt went down. And there was this guy next to him who, we don't know who he was, but he yanked under him and grabbed the collar of his shirt and yanked under his arms and yanked him up and literally probably saved his life in that point. Uh, reports later would say that there were 20,000 people on the streets, on those narrow streets in that moment. And me and my mates, we were, we were completely petrified. Everybody was scared. It was difficult to breathe. And I remember us trying to fight our way backwards, try to get back down the hill to try to get to one of those side streets. And eventually we managed to shuffle onto one of those side streets and our, our feet hit the floor and we realized that we were out of danger. But 20 people that night didn't get out of danger. 20 people were killed in that crush. It's to this day perhaps still one of Hong Kong's worst social disasters. And I was right there in the middle of it. And it is fascinating to me how quickly joy can turn to sorrow. It's fascinating to me how quickly life can turn into death. I think it's one of the shared human experiences that we all have. I don't know how you were feeling on New Year's Eve of 2019, but I was looking back on a year where I had lost my father and a year where we had seen such disruption in our city and my heart was grieving. And I remember gathering with my friends just this past New Year's Eve and saying, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that that year is finished. I hope there's never a year like that one ever again. And then we got 2020. And I wonder how you might be feeling now as we're just getting towards the end of 2020 and New Year's Eve heading into 2021. And I wonder if you're going, oh my gosh, 
I hope that there's never ever going to be a year like that one again, you know? Be careful what you say on New Year's Eve. That's all I want to say. Here's the reality. I was talking to a bunch of you guys in the last couple of weeks, and this has been a tough year, hasn't it? It's been a year where there's been a lot of division, a lot of polarization in our city and in the world. It's been a, a year where emotions have been so kind of up and down. It's been a year where we've had to deal, obviously, with our political changes in the city and dealing with a pandemic around us. And I was talking to somebody from the church just two weeks ago, and I said, how have you felt throughout this year? And he described it like this. He said, you don't want to know what it, what it feels like to me. It feels like this. It feels like I'm in the middle of this great crowd. And it feels like there's people all around me and I'm, I'm getting crushed. And it feels like I'm getting swept up in all of everybody else's opinion about stuff. It feels like there's such pressure for me to try to believe or think or post something on my social media account just like everybody else. It feels like that there is so much division around me and I feel like I want to fight through the crowd, but I feel like I'm being overwhelmed by the pressures of that crowd. And as he was sharing that story to me, I couldn't help feel the emotions of that, that day on New Year's Eve in Lang Kwai Fung. And I don't know about you, but so many of us have felt the pressure and the crushing and it can feel so suffocating, can't it? It can feel like we don't know if we we can still breathe anymore. The way this person described it to me put me right back there in the middle of that moment. And it was an uncomfortable feeling. And I wonder if you felt a little bit like that this year. Whether you've allowed yourself to pause for a moment and reflect a bit on how you felt throughout this year. Whether the crushing of everybody else's perspective and opinions has been overwhelming for you whether you're not sure how to use your emotions in this, how to create a space for peace and shalom. I wonder whether you felt the key question that I think so many of us as Christians have asked in this last year, where are you, God, in this? Like, like what are you doing in this, God? Like, are you, are you here? Have you forgotten us? Like, what, what are you doing in the midst of all of this stuff that we're feeling in the pressures of the crowd around us and the suffocation that it feels in our spirits physically and emotionally? Lord, where are you? What is your purpose? What are you doing with 2020? Anyone else felt that way? Just me. Fantastic. Great. Wow. Tough crowd today. We felt like this, haven't we? And Micah, in the, in the eighth century, is standing in a moment of Israel's history where I think he feels the crushing of the crowd. He, he feels exactly the same kind of political oppression that we are feeling in our city. He's feeling the same kind of upheaval of political divide and racial divide. He, he's feeling exactly the same thing with religious divide as well. In fact, so much so in the eighth century that Israel splits itself and 10 of the tribes go north to worship in a new place. Two of the tribes remain south and Israel, which had been united as 12 tribes in all of its history, is suddenly divided. A nation called by God, divided and ripped apart and separated so much because of their political differences and their religious differences and the ways in which they wanted to practice their faith, the way they, they thought about theology drove them apart from one another. And Mike is in the midst of this. And he's asking, God, where are you in this? What, what are you doing here, God? Have you forgotten us? And God shows up in chapter six of Micah and he says, I haven't forgotten you. You've forgotten me. Like, like you've actually forgotten who I am. And because you've forgotten who I am, you've ended up forgetting who you are. He, he says, you need to remember who I am. 
I'm, I'm your liberator, the one who took you out of Exodus, out of Egypt, out of the slavery of oppression and brought you into freedom. I'm the one who liberates. I've liberated then, I can liberate again. I'm your transformer. The one who can take a donkey and use a donkey to speak the word of God, I can do that because I have the power to bring my word to transform and make new. I've done it before, I can do that again. I'm your provider, generously. I mean, I took you to the waters of the Jordan and I led you across the waters of the Jordan into your promised land. I delivered you with the generosity of my grace. I can do that again. And he speaks out over a divided culture and a divided society. And he says, I haven't forgotten you. This is who I am. And if you remember me, if you begin to think again about me, if you begin to trust in my character, my nature, and my purposes, you can begin to live as the image of me again in this world. Which is why Micah speaks this out over Israel in a time of their great confusion and pressure and crushing in the crowd. He says, he has shown you, man, oh, what is good. So what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. I mean, he just lays it out there. He says, this is the way in which we now regain the image of God in the world so we can begin to show the world his glory once again. And in this series, we've been unpacking these ideas of what it is to act justly. The reality that we realize in Adam and Eve's story in Genesis 3, that they turned against God, that they brought sin into the world, that they disadvantaged others for the advantage of themselves, that they placed them in a self-preservation mindset that brings injustice into the world. And that actually the redemption of this is to learn that in Jesus' death and resurrection, God has now reversed the curse of Genesis 3. That all the broken relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with others, our relationship with all of creation is restored and renewed because of the work of the cross of Jesus. That's our good news. That's justice in this world. Act on behalf of that gospel. It's mercy. As Pastor Roy brought us a few weeks ago, the idea that we are so often selective in how we're merciful with people. We choose the ones that we want to be merciful for, but the Good Samaritan shows us that we are to love mercy, to speak out mercy, to act merciful even for those that we cannot stand. We're to walk humbly, as Susanna showed us beautifully last week, that we had to fight for the low ground, to fight for the place where we're not the arrogant ones with it all right, but actually the place of greatest strength is found as we lay our crowns down before God and one another. As we offer, like he did on the cross, that great moment of humility, we offer our humility before God, knowing that he will rise us up in his time. When we act justly and we love mercy and we walk humbly, we remember the liberator, the transformer, and we remember the provider, and we image something of the glory of God in the world. Can I have an amen? Amen. But that's actually not the full picture of what Micah 6, 8 is all about. I mean, as amazing as all that has been and that we've unpacked for you over these weeks, as we draw the sermon series to a close today, we do so by drawing you back to a broader picture. You see, Micah 6, 8 is not actually just about what you are to do. 
It's not just about how you are to act more justly and love more mercy and walk more humbly. It's not actually just specifically about you. Actually, Micah 6.8 is a prefiguring of a coming Messiah who would be the ultimate one who would walk for justice, who would love the mercy and who would be humble before the world. It is a prefiguring of what the messianic calling will be and a culmination of what the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is all about. Micah 6.8, in other words, is not ultimately about you. It's ultimately about Jesus. It's ultimately on behalf of a wider narrative that, that when God calls Israel to live and act this way, it's because he wants them to begin to live and act in the way of Jesus, the way of the one who would come with the purpose of fulfilling Micah 6.8 so we would all be born into a new humanity. And so what I want to do today is I want to actually draw your picture out even wider. And I want to answer that question. What is the purpose of Jesus right now here in 2020? With all the stuff that we've felt, with all the divisions that have been happening and the hostility that's been around us, with all the stuff that's taking place politically, all the stuff that's been taking place with this disease, with economics in, in our city, people out of work, all of this stuff that's going on. And we're all wondering for the answer to it. And we think it might be in Pfeiffer and their amazing drug. But maybe actually... The true answer is found in remembering what the purpose of Jesus is, even in the midst of the pressures that we're feeling. That actually maybe if we can see Jesus afresh, it might actually regenerate how we see, think and feel about the moment that we're actually in. Are you with me, church? The Apostle Paul was passionate about telling his church about the purpose of Jesus. I mean, he goes throughout all of his books and he says these beautiful moments like, there's the purpose of Christ. Don't forget what the purpose of Jesus is. Here's what Jesus came and died for. And the reason why Paul was doing that is because he's writing into also a divided society. Most of Paul's letters are written into churches that were in cities that were deeply persecuted if you were a Christian. Divisions in culture, society, politics, and religion. And he writes into that and says it's very easy to forget the purposes of Jesus even just a few years after his death and resurrection. This is what he died for. And if this is what he died for, this may be what we should live on behalf of. And so I want to read one from Ephesians chapter 2. It's my favorite one. It's the one I think that so beautifully speaks about what Jesus might be actually up to right here in 2020. It starts from uh, Ephesians 2 verse 13. Everybody okay? Hmm. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Jesus. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and its regulations. His purpose, note this, Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in this body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you. You who are far away and peace to you who are near. For through him, we, are, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So consequently, you are no longer 
strangers, foreigners or strangers, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together, built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. How awesome is Paul? I mean, he's writing to a church that's really struggling with its place in society, struggling with all the things that are going around him. And he says, let me remind you, show you what the purpose of Jesus is. You wanna know what the purpose of Jesus is right here in Hong Kong, right in this moment? Let me read it to you. It says this. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. This is always and will always be the purpose of Jesus, to make one new humanity out of the two, that if there are ever polarizations, ever divisions, ever hostilities, ever people that are separated, the purpose of Jesus, everything that he's working for, the reason why he went to the cross to die and rise again was so that the two that are estranged from one another would come together and be formed into a new unit, a unified humanity together under the blood of Jesus. That's what he died and rose for. He died to make the two one. Now Paul, writing this to the church in Ephesus, is of course talking about the divisions that there were between the Jews and the Gentiles. I mean the central division issue of the first century. Did Jesus die for the Gentiles as well as the Jews, they were asking? I mean we're the Jews and we have our laws and we have our ways and we have our cultures. We have these strict food laws that were given to us by God and here's these dirty, disgusting, horrible, ugh, unclean Gentiles. How can Jesus be for them? Surely he's just for us. And here's the Gentiles on the other side saying, who is this rabbi from Nazareth? This one that you think is this Messiah. Who is this one that you think is your king? <laughs> we put him to death, didn't we? I mean, you could not get more polar opposites when it came to politics, religion, culture, even race between these two groups of people. And Paul has the audacity to say to people who are living, eating, drinking, breathing this division, Jesus will make the two one. And you can imagine, if you were in the church in Ephesus, you'd be like, really? I mean, really? Like Jesus can make these two one? And when we sit in 2020, and we experience all of our divisions, and we're asking, where are you, God, in this? I think the temptation is that we forget his purpose because we see the division much more than we see the unity because we see the opposites and the polarizing effects much more than we see the forgiveness, love, and mercy. And so because of that, we see with our human eyes, we see what we see physically in this world, and we say, well, what is Jesus doing and I think Paul would write to us right now, if he was here and writing a letter to you, he would say, don't you forget why he died so that the two would become one. Because what was the Jews and the Gentiles for Paul, you can apply it to our context today, can't you? I mean, we've never lived perhaps in a more polarized time between a us and a them, between what 
I am and my tribe and these other people over here and their tribe. And unless you think like me, act like me, be like me, you know, smell like me, look like me, then you are in the other camp. And if you're in the other camp, then you're against me. And if you're against me, you hate me. And if you hate me, you're my enemy. There's an us and then there is a them. I mean, come on. Yellow, blue, Biden, Trump, charismatic, conservative. I mean, you name it. Hong Kong Chinese, foreigner. I mean, I mean there are so many divisions right now around our world. And, and we can so easily as Christians even find ourselves in a camp of us versus them. And Paul says, whoa, hang on. Don't you forget what Jesus purposes why he died and rose again, so that the two might become one. Don't ever forget that no matter how divided it might feel, the purposes of Christ are not thwarted. No matter how divided it might sound, no matter how it might feel for us, that Jesus' purposes have not stopped. He is at work making the two one. Come on, church. Our divisions, our hatreds, our anger at the other side, our words that we've said, the memes that we've forwarded, the things that we've spoken in our hearts but also spoken out of our mouths, the ways that we've actually created dividing walls. Even in our mess as the church, Jesus' will is not thwarted. He is making the two one. Here's what we need to hold on to, that in any, in every single time of history where humanity is polarized, where there is division and there is hostility, what Jesus is doing is he's gathering up all of our brokenness and all of our fragmentation, and he is working to create one new humanity. That's what Jesus is doing. And we either align ourselves to that in faith as the global church, or we become a part of the problem itself. We either remember the purposes of Christ and believe in them and then work towards those purposes or we stand against them. He is making the two one will we. How do we do this? Well, I want to step you through this passage that Paul gives us because he gives us some beautiful clues as to how maybe we might be able to live on behalf of the purpose of Jesus. First one's found in the first part of the verse, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Jesus. Paul right up front mentions the blood of Jesus. He's talking about the price that was paid on the cross. He's talking about this Jewish idea that the shedding of blood was for the forgiveness of sin. He's bringing us straight to the cross. And he's saying, here's the first thing you need to know. If Jesus's purpose is to make the two one, you cannot draw nearer to one another unless you first draw nearer to him, to God. It, it has to start with the blood of Jesus. And, and he says, he has, in the shedding of his blood, gone out and all of you who were far are now being gathered and drawn near to God. We are, he's being drawn near. We are being drawn near to him every single moment. He is wooing us by his presence to be nearer to him. Why? Because in the blood of Jesus, we find the only true equality that has ever been found. 
Because if the divisions are what are pushing us apart, we need a place that brings us together. The only place that can bring us together is the shed blood of Jesus. Because when the, when the blood was given on the cross, it wasn't like, here's my blood shed for the nice people. Here's my blood shed for the ones that are going to be Christians. Here's my blood shed for those that say the right things and do the, no. Here's my blood shed so that all of humanity would become one. So that it, even those that are in the them camp, whatever that means to you, Jesus died for them too. That his blood was poured out so that all of us would find equality together. So that we come to Jesus, not because of ourselves, because we've earned it, or because we're better than others, or because we're the right race, or we're the right culture, or we eat the right things, or whatever it might be that actually ends up dividing us. No, we come to Jesus simply because of his grace. And his grace is the beautiful equaling ground. So the first thing is we're all equal in our welcome into the kingdom of God through our repentance of our sin, through the blood that was shed on the cross. That's our starting point. That actually Jesus died so that we would know this kind of equality. That it's not our human birth that gets us there, but it's our new birth. That, that it's, it's not our wealth that's gonna get us there. It's actually the abundance of his generosity to us. It's not our education or how brilliant we are or our talents that is gonna get us there. It's actually by his forgiveness of our sin and his work of Jesus in humility on the cross. That's what gets us there. And it's the same for me and you and everyone in this room and everyone in this world. We have an equal share at the table. It's like he's moved the table that much wider and he's put a place right there for you. Are you with me? The two become one because Jesus has made that possible. So we have to draw near to him before we can think about drawing near to one another. Because primarily the thing that keeps us separate is the self-preservation that's driven by sin on our hearts. The issue is a human heart issue. And the only thing that can solve the human heart issue is the forgiveness and redemption of Jesus. So he says, first of all, we draw near to him. But then, verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barriers and the dividing walls of hostility. So, so what he says is this. First of all, you can't come near each other unless you first come near Jesus. But once you've come near Jesus, notice what Jesus has done. He has broken down through his blood the dividing walls of hostility. Think of it like a big triangle. Okay, you're here, the, this is the us, this is the them, whatever that might mean for you. Here's God, and as these two begin to draw nearer to God, guess what? They draw nearer to one another. Because he's broken down the dividing walls of your hostility. Think of it this way. You cannot move in the direction of God and move away from the direction of your neighbor. I mean, you cannot commit yourself to the love of God and draw near to his love without being overwhelmed for the love of your neighbor. Those two things are not incompatible. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those two things come together as we long to be nearer him. We realize we're on equal footing together and it breaks down the dividing walls and we can find the two becoming one. But the issue is that we really struggle with this. That we find ourselves fighting against this. 
that we, that we find ourselves holding on to the things that divide us rather than letting go and discovering the things that unite us. Oh, that the two would become one because he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility that we could draw near to him out of the love that we have for others. Here's our problem. When you're so used to the us and them philosophy, when Jesus says to love your neighbor, you define your neighbor in the us camp. Like, I'll love the people you put around me, Lord. I'll love my colleagues and I'll, I'll, I'll love my family and I'll, I'll love those people around me. I'll, I'll do this. But don't call me to love those in the them camp. Those that are over there. When Jesus said, no, I, I want you to love your neighbor, what he's talking about is loving your enemy. He says, it's not just good enough for you to love your friends and those that love you. Anybody can do that. What I call you to is to love those that you hate. Love those that really upset you. Love the ones that have deeply hurt you. Whoever you define as your enemy, that's the one that I now call you to love. That's the call of the purpose of Jesus. And, and we look at that and we think to ourselves, that's too much for us. How do we even begin to contemplate doing that? Enter Micah 6:8. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. As you, as you desire to, to, to live a more just life, as you want to offer mercy, not selectively, but to all that God has placed around you, as you deem to fight for that low place so that you can experience the humility before others in that process of Micah 6.8, it's on behalf of something so much bigger than just my behavioral change. It's actually the process of breaking down the dividing walls of hostility. It's actually the thing we engage in that fulfills and works on behalf of the bigger purpose of Jesus that the two might become one. He breaks down the dividing walls of hostility. Isn't that a beautiful thought? But be careful here. That doesn't mean that he's getting rid of our diversity. The great utopian picture of the Christian faith is not suddenly that we all become the same completely as one another. It's not so that we would all suddenly begin to look and act and be like one another. The beauty of the picture of the Christian faith is revelations where, where God peels back the curtain at the end of all things and he shows us that every tribe, every tongue, every culture, every race, all the differences that God has so beautifully created, they come together to praise Jesus together. The two become one at the end of all things. So when God says, I've broken down the dividing walls of hostility, what he's not saying is my goal is to uniform you and make you all clones of one another and try to get rid of all your diversity. I mean, look around this room right now. There's some beautiful diversity in this room. I mean, we got different cultures and races. This is the beauty of diversity. God has created us this way. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I see short hair. I see long hair. I see no hair. <laughs> I see all different types of human beings in this room. I see people that look like me, people that don't look anything like me. And I look at that, and that's the beauty of God's creation. 
So, so when God says, I'm going to make the two one, he's not saying, I'm going to get rid of all this beauty of diversity that I've created. But I want you to notice a strategy that the enemy has made. And the strategy of the enemy is this, that he would take our differences that are God-given and beautiful in God's eyes, and he would use those differences to create the dividing walls between us. Are you with me, church? And we think maybe that the way to get around that is to get rid of that diversity. Satan would want you to do that. It's an attack against the beauty of the how we've been made. But Jesus says, no, I'm not getting rid of your diversity. The beauty of the blood of Jesus, the power of a new humanity is that in its diversity, in its different perspectives, in its different opinions, in its different political divides, in the church, it can come together because of my blood and actually honor one another, humble before one another, forgive one another, love one another, while still holding polarizing positions on some issues, it can still find a place of unity. That's the vision. That's Jesus making the two one. And perhaps now more than ever, the church is invited to be that place. Ah, yeah, but they don't think the same as me. You know, it would be really good, Pastor Andrew. It'd be really good if we could all just kind of think like this. Oh, it'd be really good, Pastor Andrew, if we could stop doing that and just all do more like this. Any, anytime you do that, it gets worse. Just do this. It's so much better, Pastor Andrew, if you do what I think you should do. It'd be so much better here. And I respect our difference of opinion. But I don't think what God's trying to do is make us all some sort of conformed version of one another. I think the diversity of opinion and perspective in this room is one of the beautiful things about the body of Christ. And of course, we have our central beliefs. Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, being the son of God, repenting of our sins. I mean, there are some core foundational beliefs that aren't up for grabs, but there is so much in the periphery that is our perspectives and our opinions. And are we willing to hold those lightly whilst we hold tightly the things that unite us? Are we willing to look across the aisle? Are we literally willing to love the other on the other side? And in drawing his passion to a close, Paul then writes this. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but your fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundations of the apostle and the prophets, with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. There it is. We have some non-negotiables. There are some things that are right there, and we need to build on the cornerstones of our faith. Those aren't up for grabs. And in him, the whole building is now joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. So different politically, religiously, culturally, race even. He's speaking about us in Hong Kong with our political differences. Speaking about us in the church with our different expressions of style and worship and theology. He's talking about all of that. And he's saying, in him, you too, with all of those differences, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Paul finishes his argument by saying, the one place in the world that becomes the dwelling place of God's presence in the world, which has always been called to be, is the church of Jesus Christ, the church, 
that is willing to actually walk in unity with one another. The church that has the cornerstone of Jesus upon which it's built will rise up, will be built together by the Spirit of God so that even though we're not perfect, even though we still are upset at each other at times, even though we have different political opinions with one another at times, we don't allow those things to overwhelm our love for one another, our respect for one another, our walking together with one another because Jesus' presence is here and we get to image something of Him in the world. That maybe Micah 6, 8 in our act justly and our walking humbly and our loving mercy, it's, it's beyond just what it means about changing me. Maybe it's about aligning ourselves to the purposes of Jesus to change the world so that the two might become one. So that you and I would just be a little reflection of this new humanity. May Micah 6, 8 propel you beyond just what's right for you in your life and propel you into the reality that you're on behalf of an even grander thing, that in the spirit of God, Jesus is making the two one. May we honor him in that, in how we live. Can you close your eyes and bow your head? I wanna pray for you. And I want you to take a moment in this moment I believe the Holy Spirit wants to do some work with us today. And I think it's not presumptive of me to say to you in this moment, as you just quieten yourself before the Lord, that every single person in this room at times can be a part of the problem. <laughs> we can all find ourselves putting up dividing walls. We can all find ourselves in a place where we've lashed out at the other, where our right is right and their right is wrong. We've all found ourselves forwarding that meme or posting that thing on social media or saying this about that person. The reality is in a year like this where our emotions have been what they've been like, where we've seen things that have upset and angered us, where we've wrestled with the realities of what's happening in our society around us. And very rightly, we've had strong emotions about those things. We can also find ourselves being pulled into the enemy's camp and using those things to divide rather than remembering the purposes of Jesus, which is not to get rid of all of those feelings or get rid of our thinking, but to unite us under him. Paul says in this passage we've been looking at that his peace makes us one. That the shalom of Jesus draws us to him. And as we draw near to him, those broken, dividing walls get torn down. And we can love our enemies as ourselves. So I want you to take a moment just as you have your eyes closed and you're before the Lord in this time, I think the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you. For some of you, there might be some things that you need to repent of today. Some things that you've done that you know has created more division than unity in this time. Maybe the Holy Spirit's speaking to you gently about those things today and calling them out of you. Maybe for some of you in this room, you've been hurt by the opinion or perspective of the other. 
and it's deeply wounded you and you've not known how to process that. I believe the Holy Spirit wants to comfort you and heal and restore you today. And perhaps for others in this room, you feel like you're in that crushing crowd with all of the different pressures and perspectives and opinions that are all around you. It feels like you cannot breathe. And Jesus would say, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest in this moment. Some of you need to experience the peace again that makes us one. So may I invite you just to spend your own personal time now and allow the ministry of the Holy Spirit upon you. And I'm gonna invite Emma to sing a song over us that speaks of Jesus making us one. And I want you not to rush. I want you to sit in the ministry. Allow the team to minister over you. Allow the lyrics to be your prayer this morning. And let the Holy Spirit do what He desires to do in you.